Thanks, Eric. Hey, last week I talked about our role in making disciples and discipleship. And so I thought we would start this morning just hearing, like, how does it actually work in practice? So we have three ladies, Sarah, Michelle, and Susie are going to share their experience with disciple making. Good morning. God uses anyone and everyone to reach this world. He asks us to labor for him and to disciple others. We do this by intentionally and unconditionally loving the people around us. Discipleship is doable. Our job is to love people unconditionally with grace while the Holy Spirit changes their hearts. One of the things that drew me to Christ was the idea that my life could have a purpose beyond having a career, gaining wealth, or having a family. God loved me and had a plan for my life. My purpose was to glorify him and appoint others to him. In college, I was involved with a campus Christian group called the Navigators. Their mission was to know Christ and to make him known. Several women taught me how to know Christ. They discipled me. They taught me how to love Jesus, and they modeled growing in Christlikeness while being my friend. During the summer of 1979 at a Navigator summer training program, I made a decision to transfer to Syracuse University where I could be discipled by Ricky Cranes, a Navigator staff woman. Ricky poured her love of Christ into me for three years and became my dear friend. When I graduated in May of 1982, Ricky and her husband Dick asked me to move with them to Albany and to live in their home for more discipleship training and to help start a new Navigator ministry on the SUNY Albany campus. That fall, I started a Bible study for gals at SUNY Albany who were interested in knowing more about the Bible. Week after week, we looked at who Jesus was and read the life-changing words of the Bible. Several of the gals became both believers and my friends, and I started to disciple them. I met weekly with Barbara Gilbert and Michelle McTamney, and we shared a lot of life together. Good morning. Discipleship is just helping people know and follow Jesus. And uh, I met Susie when I was a freshman in college. I had been taught about God, and I had a lot of questions. Um, My first week at SUNY Albany, there was a group of Christians offering a short survey, and one of the questions was, would you be interested in studying the Bible? And I said, yes. Uh, Susie was the Bible study leader for myself and some other women, among them Barb and Laura. Um, But she didn't just lead the Bible study. She became my friend, and she let me ask all kinds of questions. She accepted me right where I was at the time and began walking through life with me. And the grace and the love that she showed me with no agenda, no judgment, allowed me to see what it meant to follow Jesus. Now here we are 40 years later, continuing to journey through life as friends and sisters in faith. Life is a journey, and we meet people who are at different points in their journey. How I, help, how I live out helping others know and follow Jesus has looked different at different times in my life. For me, I have many friends with different worldviews, and some of who want nothing to do with church or religion. They're not interested in studying the Bible, but they are willing to be my friend. So I befriended them. And because my faith impacts the way I live, it comes up naturally as I share my life with them. Some of these friendships go back 20 years. 
and we've had conversations over the years. Others are shorter-term relationships, like the ones we've had this year with two international students through the ICA ministry. So my encouragement to you is to be intentional about walking through life with people who see the world differently and give them the chance to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. As Susie and Michelle have already shared, God's faithfulness in reaching out to us through others can create generations of Jesus-following sisters, cousins, grandparents, and children. Susie Bandy is my spiritual grandmother, although she is not far from my age. Long ago, Susie, as she talked about, became a friend of a college student named Barbara Gilbert. Susie shared her own story of following Jesus, finding Jesus, and following God with Barb. And when Barb turned her life over to God, Susie coached her in how to grow her fledgling faith into a deep, abiding walk with Jesus. Two years or so later, Barb was on a University at Albany bus and overheard me talking about living in Switzerland. I was a new transfer to Albany, and with no campus housing available to transfer students, I was housed in a very sketchy remote hotel annex in downtown Albany. Days would go by in which I talked with no one, dribbled my soccer ball alone on the Empire State Plaza, and skipped classes because I didn't think it mattered. When Barb turned to me on that bus and began talking about living in Europe, I found a friend. When she continued to get together with me over meals in my lonely housing, along paths to the library, and shared her life, our surface talks deepened into an honest friendship. She shared her very real terrible choices in her past, her midnight train trips to New York City in high school while her parents thought she was sleeping. It's a skill set right there. And many other life events. When she read out of the Bible to me, showing me how it was relevant to her life and mine, I was both intrigued and puzzled because I've got to say, who carries a Bible around with them? Like, I didn't know people did that. So Barb's friendship with me was a beginning to the ending of a chapter of my search for the answer to this question, is God real? A question I had been asking since I was in middle school. Through many other disciples of Jesus that I met through Barb, I got to see real people living real lives that had a peace and joy the world did not have and that I definitely wanted. I surrendered my heart and life to Jesus in September of 1986. There was nothing about Barb Gilbert, now Ravi Chandran, nor me, especially then, that would make a Hollywood producer see the redemption that would happen in my life eventually. There simply was a young, new disciple of Jesus, Barb, willing to share her story with a lonely student, me, whose life was changed forever by God's kindness in calling me and showing me a better way in him. In 1993, as a result of an in-depth Bible study on community and how to impact the culture around us, Don and Michelle Cranes, some of you may have noticed the name that came up before, Dick had a younger brother. (laughs) Greg and I and another couple, Chuck and Kathy Peterson, looked at a map and began praying that God would allow us to buy houses within stroller distance of each other so that we could be used by God to impact a neighborhood. We were convinced that they would know we are Christians by our love. God led us to Scotia and 
where, no surprise to God, Tom and Sarah had already landed, (laughs) and eventually to East Glenville Community Church, where we have seen him do amazing things for Christ through us. Just ordinary people who love Jesus and love others. Through the years, I've had the great privilege of discipling many women, and as John says, there is no greater joy than this, to hear that my children, spiritual children, follow the truth. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. My hope is, is to, for this church that we would learn how to disciple people. And it sometimes seems to change as the society changes and stuff. And maybe this is something we have to relearn. How do we make disciples? How do we help other people come close into contact with God? And my not-so-secret purpose in doing this sermon series is just aiming us towards that. That, that I believe God wants to be at work in us, that we would have this, this outward focus on others um, and seeing how God might use us. So we hope to keep sharing stories and, and talking about that um, as we just continue. But this is the last Sunday for the series where we've been looking at the, the parable of the prodigal son. And as, as you know, I, I drew a lot of this out of the book, The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. And I do have some news. Some of you may have heard Timothy Keller um, a couple days ago died and has entered into the care of the Savior. And so he is now experiencing a, a closeness with God. So, but actually, I want to start this morning with a different a story from a different preacher. Someone I heard when I was a, I was a young man named Tony Kimpolo. And, and so I remember hearing the story, and then it's, it's in a book he wrote called uh, the, the Kingdom of God is a Party. And our focus this morning is on the Great Feast. So, so Kimpolo starts the story by he was... I do have notes on this. He he was in Hawaii for a conference and had terrible jet lag, so he was awake at like three in the morning and didn't know what to do. Says he ended up going to find some place that was open the middle of the night, some diner, and goes there, gets a, a coffee and a donut, and he was he's watching as the guy used his bare hands to put the donut on his plate, like it's one of those kind of places. But, you know, that's what's open at 3 in the morning. And so he's sitting there sip, sipping his coffee when all of a sudden, like, like a group of eight, eight women come in who were all prostitutes. And so there he is at this diner, him and a bunch of these, these ladies. And he just sort of overhears their conversation. And, and the one woman, he later finds out her name is Agnes. She says, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Let me read what he says. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want, you want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? He says, come on, said the woman. Why, why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, that's all. What do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? 
Tony says when he heard that, he made a decision. He said he sat and waited until the women had left, and then he called over the fat guy, the, the, the guy behind the counter, the one with the greasy hands, and he says, do they, do they come here every night? He says, yeah, he answered. And then that one that was next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, that's Agnes. She comes here every night. Why do you want to know? Getting a little suspicious. He says, because I heard her say tomorrow is her birthday. What do you say you and I throw her a birthday party? And the guy explodes. That's a great idea. She's a, yeah, she's, Agnes is a sweet girl. And then, then his wife behind the counter, yeah, oh, yeah, I love the idea, Agnes. No one ever does nothing nice for Agnes, and she's so sweet. So they come up with a plan. Tony will get, like, decorations and happy birthday signs. And uh, the, the cook, he's, he'll, he'll make the cake. Yeah, that, the cake's my thing. I'll make that. And so they, they get it all planned out, and they come the next night, and... Tony comes around 2.30, and he's, he puts up all the decorations, and, and the word gets out. And so before he knows it, the place is packed with prostitutes. And Tony, who is there for a Bible conference. So, um, and so at, you know, at 3.30 on the dot, door swings open, and in comes Agnes and her friend. And he had cued everybody, and they, he says, we all screamed happy birthday. Let me read what he says. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her as she was led to sit on one of the stools during the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her as we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday Dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. Her eyes moistened. And then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. And, you know, the, the cook says, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow them out. And, and she was too flabber. He ends up blowing them out for her, you know, all over the cake. Um, and, and then, you know, they're ready to cut the cake, and Agnes says, uh, can I keep the cake? And, and she said, sure, you, you can, you know, she's never had a cake before, and she didn't want to just see it disappear, so, so she keeps the cake, and she actually goes, takes it to her apartment, and so she walks out, and, and it says, when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place, and not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist, that's what Tony was, to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And then when I finished... Harry, the, the, guy, the chef's name was Harry. Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony says, In one of those moments where just the right words came, he says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties. I'm going to use his word language, by the way. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 a.m. in the morning. And Harry waited a moment and then answered, says, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was, I'd join a church like that. 
Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning? Could it be that was the kind of church Jesus came to bring? The, the, one of the great images of the kingdom of God, it's the theme of Tony's book, but it's also, it's in our passage, is, is the kingdom of God is a celebratory feast, the great feast. God has a plan to invite people into this amazing feast and bring salvation, and he includes people that surprise us. Um, so Jesus described the kingdom of God as the great feast, the great wedding banquet. So last week, I, I talked about the Titanic, and I tried to, to get something across, and I'm not sure, I, sometimes I look back, and like, did I say it the right way? Can, can I reiterate just one thing from last week? Because um, I talked about how the goal was, I used the Titanic board game as the illustration, and we would go and help people get off off the lifeboat, in, or off the Titanic, onto the, into the lifeboats. Well, the, the next day, I think, or so, Ben must have heard me talk about the Titanic, and he says, I want to watch the movie. So we watched the Titanic, had to fast forward through a few parts. But, um, but it's still a, an interesting movie. And at one point, after the ship had sank, you know, there were people who got in the lifeboats, and and some of them wanted to go back and try to rescue maybe any survivors because there were people floating in the frigid water. And a, mo- many of them, and they had this big argument, would not go back. They were afraid. They, and you, the one conversation, is they got in an argument over whether they should try to go back and help the people um, or whether they would. And I guess one or, one, only one or two boats of the rescue boats went and tried to pull people out of the water and save them. That's my point is, we in the church of Jesus Christ are not called to operate out of fear and anger. Right? We are called to operate out of faith and love. And so we would be the ones that would go back and pull people out of the water. That's what I want to, that's the kind of church Jesus Christ wants us to have. The kind of church that's not operating out of fear and anger, but out of faith and love. And that we have a heart, we have the same heart as God does for the people in our community, no matter how lost they are. Today I want to focus on this feast, this idea that God is doing something and, and his kingdom looks like a party. And so, I want to first start in this Old Testament passage in Isaiah. This was one of the early pictures in the Old Testament of what God's plan was for salvation. And it's an amazing passage. And so I want to point out a few details within it. It, It's speaking of a future day when God would bring salvation for his people. And it starts off by talking about he will make a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And it's the idea that God would bring a satisfaction. There's a sense in this world where we're never truly fed, right? There's a dissatisfaction, an emptiness that this world will leave us with. God's kingdom will satisfy 
that hunger like nothing else. That's the idea of the great feast. It says it'll, it'll take place on this mountain. What mountain is it referring to? Well, the picture on the screen is Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Right, so Mount Zion is a picture of the whole city of Jerusalem, and it would be at, in that city would be the staging point for this plan. Whatever God would do, it would it, Jerusalem would be the key key place for it. So it would be am, amongst the, the Jewish people, but it would not be limited to the Jewish people. It says, "For all peoples will be invited to this feast." Not just the people of Israel, not just the chosen people of the Old Testament. Matt, Jesus would affirm, affirm that same truth in Matthew when he talked about the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish patriarchs. He says, People, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast. Aren't we, aren't we glad of that? I don't know if too many of us are actually of Jewish heritage, right? That the feast was opened up to people like us of different backgrounds. So it would be on this mountain. It would be for all peoples. Then it talks about the veil that covers over all peoples. What's that talking about? And it's answering the question, what keeps people from being with God? What keeps people from being able to experience God, to know God, to be in his presence, to come to the feast? It's the presence of sin in our life, right? There is a sinful brokenness in every person. There is a guilt because of our transgressions. And if, if that is not dealt with, then we can't get there. But in what God was going to do in bringing the kingdom, he would decisively deal with that covering, that veil. It would be taken away. It would be swallowed up. And when it swallowed up that, it would also say death itself would be swallowed up forever. It would take away the, the issue of, of eternal death and separation from God. But notice how it uses the word swallowed up. Think about how would God deal with this covering and, and barrier of sin the barrier of sin between us and God. How would God deal with the problem that we, we all have sinned and therefore we are all prone to and subject to death? He would take it upon himself. The Lord would take away these things by taking it on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. He would swallow it up, take it upon himself, and therefore remove it from us. And all that would happen on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It also talks about how on that day he would take away the reproach of his people from all the earth. It would, it would, it would be seen when the, when the day comes in its fullness that those who put their faith in the Son of God would be proved right in the end. There's times, do we not, when it it feels like we're told how foolish we are for believing in Christ. How, how, how wrong we are in our attitudes and views by believing in God's word. And we know and trust that in, when the fullness comes, 
people will see, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will see that the reproach will be taken away. And so, even in this passage, we, some of it we've experienced in the coming of Christ, but there's other parts we are still waiting for the fullness of it, waiting for the day when the Lord God will wipe away every tear from our faces. Right? Revelation 21 speaks of that day coming when death itself will be gone forever. Jesus is the one who would bring in this, this, this kingdom feast. Right? The, he, he would come declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus would use the illustration of a wedding feast or a great celebration or a great banquet to describe what was happening when the kingdom would come. And so there's a duality here. There's a sense of when we come to faith in Jesus, we've come to the feast. We've, it's, it's already happened. It's already arrived with the coming of Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So in, in some ways, the feast has already started Right? And, and we're included because we're in the kingdom. In other ways, we're still awaiting the fullness of it. We still experience the trials and sufferings of this life and know that, that death has not yet been completely dealt with as it will be in the, the fullness of the feast. And so it's, it's almost like we're in the hors d'oeuvres phase of a banquet, right? We've come, we're here, and we get little tastes of it. And yet we're still waiting for the completeness of it. And that's, that's what it means to, to come to Jesus. To, to, we've come and accepted the invitation for the feast. It talks about come for all is ready. So, so in Luke 15, um, we have the story of the prodigal son. Do I have one more slide before that? In Luke 15, we have the story. Oh, yes. So in Luke 14, Jesus talks more about this banquet. So it affirms what, what I was saying, that, that Jesus described, someone asked, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus do? He tells a story, a parable about a banquet. And he said to the man, man once gave a great banquet and invited many. That is what's happening in the ministry of Jesus, that many are invited to come into the banquet, to come to the party. And then in the parable goes on to that, that there were some who didn't want to come. Some who made excuses of why they, they didn't want to come to that banquet. And then that leads into Luke 15 that we've been looking at, right? The parable of the prodigal son, the son that comes home. And what's the father going to do? He throws a banquet, celebrate, celebration, a feast. So I want to look at this this part of the parable that, that Eric had read and ask, what does it mean to come back to the Father? What does it mean to come to the feast, to enter into the kingdom? And going through the different verses in that, it first talks about how when the son came home, it started with he came to himself or he came to his senses. He realized how hungry he was and how how no one would give him anything. 
So the first step in coming home was realization that there was a hunger in him that this world could not satisfy. I think that's the first step for everybody to come home, right? Because we're going to try to find something out there that's going to satisfy the inner hunger that we have in, in this life, right? We're going to try wealth, right? If I get enough money, then I'll be content and at peace. We're going to try fame and career success, right? If, I, if, I, if my career takes off, then I will feel happy and satisfied. Maybe we'll try it with family or a good home, or maybe we'll try to fill it with sex or, or adventurous activities. All these things we're going to try out first before we'll admit, no, not, even if I get them, there's still an emptiness inside. And then we can see that truth. No one would give him anything. And yet here I am starving to death. But in my father's house, there was bread aplenty. That, that the first step, in a sense, for someone coming home is realizing they need that relationship with God. They need to come home to the father. The second step is, is that it is coming home to the father. Right? I will rise and go to my father. It's about a relationship, or we could use the word reconciliation, right? Jesus helps us reconcile so that we are in that right relationship with God, our father, that we were meant for, that we're made to know and be known by God. And, and through Jesus, the son of God, that becomes possible, that he's in our life, that we, we walk with God, knowing him. So it's about relationship, with God the Father. The next a- aspect we see about coming home is it, it, it involves a decision. There's an a, a active decision that we make that we will turn to God and whether and we, by faith in Christ we put our faith in him and we say yes to coming. That, that doesn't happen by, you don't just drift into a relationship with God. It requires an intentional step towards him, right? We, we can wander away from God easily. We can wander away as a sheep, you know, we get distracted by the things of this world and next thing you know, God is in the way in the background in our life. Coming home requires that intentionality to say, I need to go home to my father. I will start putting one foot in front of the other. I think the decision for a person to trust their life to Christ and come to God is the most important decision of anyone's life. There's, there's nothing more important than that, and yet people take it so casually and blithely. God wants people to, 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 to make that decision. And it, it's worth thinking through. It's, it's worth analyzing in some ways. Like, what does that mean for me to make that? To, Jesus talked about you don't want to just make that decision lightly. You know, like, oh, I'll build a building here. Like, you know, someone who built a building and didn't have enough to finish it. Like, if you're going to come follow me, follow me. Give your life. Trust me with your life. I, I, it's, it's the right decision. But people have to think it through and, and make that decision to come home. In verse 20, it talks about how 
when the father saw him coming from a long way off. One of the best things about coming home to the father is you experience grace far better than you you realized. That God is a good father. It says his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Coming home to the Father, we see God's love in a a way, his grace, his goodness, his mercy, in a way we could not in any other way. We discover the goodness of God as we come home. The other part of this, and I tried to do alliteration I did. You know, I have, let's see, I had realization. Let me give you the, the fill-in-the-blank things because I know I'm all over the map today. Realization, reconciliation, or relationship. And then, so I started with R's, and I'm like going good. And then it becomes D's, right? Decision, and then, well, grace. Well, that didn't work, but you discover grace. So there's a D in there. Uh, and then I got one more D, public declaration, What's the son do when he comes home? It, it talks about how um, the son said in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's a public declaration of, of his need and his coming home. I think in coming into the kingdom, there, there, there needs to be that, that verbal proclamation, Father, I have sinned. I, I've, I, I need your mercy. I need your grace. John 10 talks about, it, it's not, God does not make it hard to come to salvation, right? He's not looking for reasons to keep people out. God, God doesn't make it hard. He says, if you believe in your heart, Jesus um, died for our sins and was raised from the dead, and you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, right? So it's, it's not hard, but it does there is that aspect of declaration. That's one reason why we do baptisms. Baptism is a symbol, a picture of coming into that saving relationship and finding forgiveness. And so if someone's never been baptized, then, then it's, it's, a, it's a way of publicly declaring, I am ready to follow Christ and experience and walk in the new life he has for me. So again, I'll re- reiterate, if you've not been baptized, we would love to, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, so those are, those are the things about the son coming home. Then the verses 22 and 24 talks about God's response to that, the father's response. And it's such an incredible picture as it says, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the breast robe, right, quickly. Like God, God responds right away. If you're ready to take the step towards him, he's ready to receive you. And so bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. I, I, I think each of those elements of the father's response has significance. Let me, let me talk about each one. The, the robe symbolizes what I would call justification. It's a fancy church word that means we are set right with God. He, he, so if, if a, you know, you're in, on trial and you're, you're found and you're declared guilty, 
The opposite of that is justification, to be declared not guilty. And that's what happens. The robe is a symbol of the righteousness given to us. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness, but it's given to us. That's what the robe. The ring is not just so that, you know, oh, your hands kind of look kind of plain. We should put some de- decoration on them. No, the ring symbolizes sonship, adoption. So the ring is a sign that he is adopted or received back as a son, not just a hired hand. The sandals, sandal, the sandals I think have a double uh, image. One is that of restoration. He had a need and the father was going to put him back on his feet again. Right? The, the sandals, putting him back on his feet, meeting that, that need. But the other aspect is discipleship. Now he will walk and we will walk and when we enter the kingdom, we will walk with God in our life. And then, of course, the celebration represents the feast, as we've been talking about, the, the, the plan of God all along, the kingdom of God will be a celebration feast. Rejoice with me. Then he talks about how his son came from death to life. That's speaking of how in, in coming to Christ, and coming to salvation, we are made spiritually alive. Apart from Christ, there's a, a sense in which we are, are dead. Talks about being dead in our sins. Now, that's not literal. You're, you know, people can be walking around physically alive, but yet they're spiritually dead, which means they don't know God. They don't understand the things of God. They, they can't even see it. This is why the world might seem so messed up at times and so obtuse to, to spiritual truths because they're spiritually lost and dead. And apart from what happens when in coming to faith, it says the Spirit raises us back to life, which is saying now we are alive to God and can see spiritual truths that we couldn't see before. And so this, my son was dead and now he's alive. There's a spiritual life that comes in coming to the salvation. And then the other aspect is he was lost and is found. Now that God's presence will be with him forever. When, we, when you say yes to Jesus and you come in to know him and walk with him, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you to the very end of the age. He will be with us even if we stumble and struggle and fall down at times. He will be with us. We, ne- we need not fear him abandoning us because now we are his and we belong to him. That's a picture of what it means to come to salvation, to come back to the Father, to come into the feast. And I'm convinced that it is only in coming to the Lord that the deepest desires of our heart can be met. Every person craves love. Every person needs security. Our heart aches for hope. Our heart aches for purpose in this life. And this world promises and promises, but cannot deliver. It will leave us dry and parched. It will leave us hungry, and no one will give us anything. Only in Christ can that heart's desire be met. One of my favorite passages is John 4, and it's Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Let me read this. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning normal water, 
will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's a picture of the the feast, the hunger satisfied. And, And we who said yes to Jesus have come to the feast. We're still awaiting the ultimate fulfillment, but we have been welcomed into the kingdom. We now have a seat with our, with our name on it, right? Little, little fold-over name tags. You always make that. Oh, you ever go to a wedding like, where's my seat? Am I, am I, do I, I got to pick my own? Or is there, you, you'll find in the kingdom, oh, there's a name, name card. I ha, it's already written down. I have a spot, right? That's what happens when we, we trust what, what little of we know of ourselves to what we know of Christ. And, and I'm convinced of this, though. In the church, we get a foretaste of the great feast, right? We begin to experience the feast here in the community of believers. You enter in one by one, but the feast is inherently communal, a party. In the, the Luke 14, it talks about how a man, the, the man who had the great banquet, he wanted his house to be full. Now, I want to know, all personality types are still welcomed. I want to speak to the introverts for a minute, right? Because I know there's some of you, you will go to a party, you'll get your plate of food, and you'll try to go hide, right? I, I get it. I, I, I've, you know, I, I know how, you, God won't let you do that, right? You don't get your own room, but he'll make, he'll make it possible for you to actually enjoy being with people. And there's going to be a place for maybe conversations and little groups in the, in the kingdom as well. All personality types. But he brings us together into a community so we can begin to taste what eternal life tastes like. Uh, if you look at the early church, Acts 2, it talks about how they, they gathered together and they studied God's word, they, they studied together, they prayed together, but it also said they kept breaking bread together. They ate together in each other's houses, right? They experienced community. And there is an attractiveness in a joyful community of disciples. In Acts 2, it talks about how many people, um, the, many were added to the church that day. People came to faith because they saw the joy and the community, and they saw these people celebrating the banquet, and they wanted in. If you remember what we talked about last week, the, the, the other, other oper- the scribes and the Pharisees who were grumbling, resentful, and angry, which would you rather go to, a party of people laughing and joyful, or a, part of, a party of people who are grumbling and resentful and angry? Which one would be a better party to go to, right? Um, in Luke 14... The parable of the great banquet. So, so it talks about those who come to the banquet, but there's one other aspect, the servants. And it says the man throwing the banquet, he, he sends his servants out. This is the opportunity we have, not only to come into the banquet, but also to be a part of helping others know about it, sending out the invitations At one point, the master says, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Jesus wants the hurting people of this world invited to the party, even if their lives 
are a mess right now. Invite them anyways. We'll take care of that when they come. And then later it says, go out to the highways and the hedges and the, compel people to come in. Right? Jesus wants the people who are far away from him to have the chance to come, to, have, to know what it's about. Who's going to come to the banquet? The ones who are hungry. The ones whose life is satisfied. So in the story Jesus told in Luke 14, there are people who say, oh, I got this going on, I can't come. I got this going on, I can't come. They, are, they have their own things going in their own life. And so they're not willing to come to the banquet. Who's going to come? The ones who see their need. The ones who have who recognize, and maybe we were talking about in our, our, the kingdom living class, you know, about praying for people. Sometimes people have to come to that realization, the first R back in my list, right? The realization that this world cannot satisfy before they're willing to come. And our calling as servants might be to be there when that realization hits. And then we could say, hey, would you come with us? Come check this out. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Or let me meet with you and we can we could talk more about this. That God might put you in the, the life of someone who's ready to, 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 to come in, to come home. I want to talk a little bit as our church. How do we act as these servants? Inviting in people? How do, we, how do we be a part of this, inviting people to the feast? And as I thought about, there, there's two, two aspects of this that both are happening at the same time. One is we invite in and we also send out. And there's a, a rhythm to that in the church. So we hope, you know, every Sunday, but also in other times, we invite people in. Come join us. Come see. Come Come see what God has for you. We invite people in, and we want to be welcoming and ready to, to have people to join us. Um, we want to help people learn to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. We want to invite people into that. But we also know there's times we've got to send people out, right? Uh, you know, each week when we send you off, you are going into relationships you have with people that, that don't know the Lord, right? And, and you're being sent out to be there. The Lord is sending you to those places. There's, a, there's other ways we'll, we'll send out. So we have a group that's going to go um, today and, and again in a couple weeks to go help, help feed the hungry and connected the street soldiers activity. Like that's awesome. That's sending out. There might be other ways we, we send out, um, send out mission trips or, or eat simple things. We got to take Jesus off of this little bit of property that we own. So we invite in and we send out. We're going to do something new. We, we met on Monday and we have this idea that keeps, in a sense, evolving a little bit and it may yet evolve more. But you know how last year we did the one starry night? I thought it went great. We decided not to do that every year, but we were like, what should we do instead? So where we landed is a fall family festival because we love alliteration and I wanted to add the word faith, but they said, nope, only, only three Fs are allowed. But, but it's, it's fall family festival. But, but we're doing it with a, it's 
doing it with an angle. And the angle is this. We want to pitch that we're here to help families grow closer to God. And so we want to have a way to, to, to do things. So we're going to do carnival games, not for kids, but carnival games with your kids. Right? Maybe it's a game where you put little Johnny on his shoulders and you have to make a basket, but it's, it's parents and children doing games together. That, that's, that's what we're thinking. But we also want to offer resources for parents to, to maybe teach their kids about God or about faith. Because here's what I'm, I'm thinking as I look at the stats. There's a, a, the trend lines of people actively involved in church have been going down for a while. That means there are people out there who, who have, have at some point in their life, maybe they learned a little bit as a kid, maybe they went to church, maybe they have some aspect of faith, but, you know, they, they become parents, they become families, but they've not been bringing their kids in. And my guess is some of them are feeling just a little bit like, well, my kids should learn about God. Maybe they feel a bit of guilt or just a desire, but they don't know how. They're wary of maybe signing up for something too intensive because life is busy, and they feel like the need for this. Maybe they feel a little intimidated just walking into a church if they don't know people. So this fall family festival is aimed at, at a one-day event. Hey, come. We'll give you a little, a few things you could do that maybe help you start to develop faith with your family and your kids. We'll give them something fun. We'll have bounce houses, hay rides, whatever, you know, fair food. Um, I'm pushing for corn dogs. So, but whatever it takes to like, to, to, to give that, that attractiveness. But the, the pitch is this, how can we help you share faith with your kids? And if we do that, maybe they'll see the need to become part of a church where they can do it more fully. So I want your help on this. We've kind of developed this idea in the last week, and we're looking in late October. I'm asking, hey, can we pull this off as a church? What do you think? Is this something we could do? So did the camera get everyone who clapped who will now? So if you have questions, hit me later. Um, I, I do need to wind up because I've been talking long, but, um, and I, I really, I really want to end with something, and it is a poem. And I don't read poems often, just so you know, but this is one I heard, and this is kind of how I wanted to end this series, and it's called I Stand by the Door, or I Stand at the Door. And this impacted me when I think about what's my role in life, and I remember hearing this as a young person Um, I think it caught how I want to be in my relationship with people. And it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. It's by Sam Shoemaker. I stand by the door. I neither go, go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. 
The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks open and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door. The starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast Roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes I venture in a little further, but my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. There's another reason why I stand there. Some people get partway in and become afraid, lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us. And these people feel a cosmic claustrophobia and want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And the people way inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them that they are spoiled for the old life they have seen too much One taste of God and nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just where they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving, preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know him, know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. As the worship team comes up. Father, we know you are at work inviting people to the feast. May our lives, may our words, may our relationships be such that we can help people put their hand on the latch and find the door in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.